I wonder if you could take a few moments to think about the things that define you. The things that give you a sense of identity. The things that give you a sense of purpose, maybe even hope. When you think about your life, what are the things that, if someone took them away, that you wouldn't really be sure that you're you anymore? Can I give you an example of some of the, the big things that people use to find identity and purpose in their lives? For some people, it's their work, their career. And you see then in later life, folks really struggling with retirement. They don't just have a problem of what to do with their time. They have a problem with who they are now that they're not doing the thing that has come to define them for so long. And for other people, they're defined by, they find their identity in their family. And it can be a real struggle again, later in life when the, the nest is all of a sudden empty or people struggling particularly with bereavement. Life for so long, uh, who they really are has been about how they relate to others. The, the things perhaps that they do for them or the things that they receive from other people. So when those people are removed from their day to day, they really, really struggle. For yet others, it isn't work or family, but it's some sort of sports team. Charlotte and I at the moment are really enjoying the documentary Welcome to Wrexham and it's an insight into the, the attitudes and the ideas that certain fans have surrounding sports teams and football clubs. And you find individuals in those situations really struggling when their team doesn't perform, when their team re is relegated perhaps or loses to a local rival. It's not just a sad day but it's an entire shift in who they are. And this morning we're going to be looking at Act 6, but really Act 7 and Stephen's speech. It's um, in Act 6 where we see the top brass in Israel's religious and civil hierarchy. Um, they are hearing reports that there's this young man called Stephen and people are falsely saying that he's undermining their temple and their law. And it turns out that the temple and the law are two things which are massive for them when it comes to their identity and their purpose. Let me just read you from Acts chapter 6 verse 13. This man, speaking about Stephen, they say, never stops speaking against this holy place, the temple or the law. We heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and that he wants to change the customs that Moses has handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like that of an angel. Are these things true? The high priest asked. And we saw last week that all of this is going to result in Stephen being killed. We considered last week how these folks responded to the, the threat that Stephen posed, to the things that defined them, where they had their sources of identity and they couldn't hack it and, it, and it winds up in him dying. And it all goes to show how utterly dependent they are on the temple and the law to understand who they are in themselves. They ask the question, in a sense, without these things, then who are we? You attack these things, Stephen, and you attack 
us. Well, this morning, as we consider Stephen's response, his speech, his, his great sermon, I think it's the, the longest by verse count uh, speech or sermon given in the entire entirety of the book of Acts, we're going to see, I think, that as Christians, there is only one thing that should define us above all other things, and that is Jesus. There is only one thing that should define us, and that is Jesus. God's goodness, God's grace, God's love with flesh on the bones coming to us and doing what is necessary for us. I think when we look at Stephen's speech, we will see that even if we have everything else in the world without Jesus, we've got nothing. And that if we have Jesus, then you can take everything else away and we should still be able to find ourselves on solid ground. Take work, take family, take sports team, take temple, take law, get rid of them all. And if we have Jesus, we can still know who we are. We can still have hope and we can still have confidence. If I could just introduce a little bit of gospel algebra into our time together this morning. We're going to look at Stephen's speech and I hope we're going to come to the conclusion that Jesus plus nothing equals everything to us. So let's read bit by bit what it is that Stephen has to say in defence of these accusations made against him. Chapter 7, verse 2. Brothers, and fathers, he replied, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he settled in Haran. And he said to him, leave your country and relatives and come to the land that I will show you. Then he, Abraham, left the land of Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him moved to this land in which you are now living. He didn't give it to him as an inheritance in it, not even a, a foot of ground, but he promised to give it to him as a possession and his descendants after him, even though he was childless. God spoke in this way. His descendants would be strangers in a foreign country and they would be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. I will judge the nation that they will serve as slaves, God said. And after this, they will come out and worship me in this place. And so he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And after this, he fathered Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Stephen begins his defence by going right back to the beginning. The beginning, at least, for the Jewish people to Abraham, to ground zero of Israel. He's the one that God chose, that God plucked, that God promised to make a great nation out of, through whom God would say the whole world was going to be rescued. And what's important to see, what's important to recognise here, in the face of the accusations being made against Stephen, in the implicit statement that the Sanhedrin and the other rulers are making, that the temple and the law is what defines them, Abraham here had no land. Abraham here had no temple. Abraham here had no law. 
just this strange symbol of circumcision about the promises of God. That Abraham, the one who they all looked back to as the beginning of everything, before he had anything else to define him, he was clearly God's man. Here is someone who had nothing except God's grace towards him, his call on his life and his promises for the future. Here's our ground zero. And in it we see that if you have Jesus and nothing, you can still have everything. Stephen continues, verse 9. The patriarchs that are, that is the children of Abraham, became jealous of Joseph and sold him into slavery in Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his troubles. He gave him favour and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him ruler over Egypt and over his whole household. Now a famine and great suffering came over all of Egypt and Canaan, and our ancestors could find no food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our ancestors there for the first time. The second time, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Joseph invited his father Jacob and all of his relatives, 75 people in all, and Jacob went down to Egypt, and he and our ancestors died there, and they were carried back to Shechem and were placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Stephen's next step, on his potted history of Israel, is with Joseph. He of Andrew Lloyd Webber fame. And he starts to put his finger on a little thread that works its way out through the rest of human history. He starts to put his finger on this thread that those who reject God end up rejecting God's people. And that conversely, that being rejected by people does not mean that you have been rejected by God. You see, Joseph here was, like Abraham before him, God's man. And those around him, even his kinsmen, his brethren, his flesh and blood, rejected him. But in all of that rejection, there was no hint, there was no sign at all that God had abandoned Joseph. Joseph still didn't have a place. Joseph still didn't have a law. Just like Abraham, all he had was the kindness of God, the grace of God, a relationship with God, through God, on God's terms. Joseph was someone who we continue to see had Jesus, but very little else or nothing else. And in that had everything. Developing this story, though, we begin to see that the everything that we have when we come to Jesus, when we come to God's kindness and grace and love towards us, often includes rejection, often includes opposition and persecution. Jesus promised as much. Didn't he tell his disciples that they had, the world had hated him first, that the, the world would hate them after him? And Joseph, again, is someone who shows us that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Sometimes that everything includes an opposition. 
We pick up the story again in verse 17. As the time was approaching to fulfill the promise that good God had made to Abraham, the people flourished and multiplied in Egypt, until a different king who did not know Joseph ruled over Egypt. He dealt deceitfully with our race and oppressed our ancestors by making them abandon their infants outside so that they wouldn't survive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was cared for in his father's home for three months, and when he was put outside, Pharaoh's daughter adopted and raised him as her own son. So Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and was powerful in his speech and in his actions. When he was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. And when he saw one of them being mistreated, he came to his rescue and avenged the oppressed man by striking down the Egyptian. He assumed that his people would understand that God would give them deliverance through him, but they didn't understand. The next day he showed up while they were fighting and tried to reconcile them peacefully, saying, Men, you are brothers, why are you mistreating each other? But the one who was mistreating his neighbour pushed Moses aside, saying, Who appointed you ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me the same way you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When he heard this, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he was approaching to look at it, the voice of the Lord came, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Moses began to tremble and did not dare look. The Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, because the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected when they said, Who appointed you a ruler and a judge? This is the one that God sent as a ruler and a deliverer through an angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out and performed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for 40 years. Like Abraham, like Joseph, Moses' story does not begin with any temple or any law. All he has, just like the other two, is the favour of God, the grace of God, the kindness of God, and the promises that had been made. In his story, we continue to see that Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and we begin to see another threat, not just of opposition, which we do see in that story, but of second chances to walk with God. There are second chances aplenty. There's a second chance for Moses himself. Moses attempts to be this grand, great leader who will deliver his people, but he doesn't succeed the first time. But in his story, focusing on Jesus, the everything that he has includes a second chance to do the very thing that God has promised he would do through him. It's also a story in which we see a second chance for the people. 
the people, first of all, rejected God's man. They rejected God. Who are you to, uh, who appointed you to be a ruler and a judge over us, they say. And Moses has to flee into hiding in the wilderness. And yet God sends Moses back because he is the God who in the everything that he gives us is second chances. Even to those who would at first reject God, there is a second chance. We saw that as well in the story of Joseph. Those brothers who had rejected him and sold him into slavery in Egypt, who were glad to consider him of, of nothing better than a dead man, they had a second chance. They had a second opportunity to come to him and to find life through him. You see, when Jesus plus nothing is everything to us, opposition will come. But so too will opportunities to turn back to God and to find everything once more. Chapter 7, verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will rise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers and sisters. He is the one who was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. He received living oracles to give to us. Our ancestors, though, were unwilling to obey him. Instead, they pushed him aside, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't even know what's happened to him. They even made a calf in those days, offered sacrifice to the idol, and were celebrating what their hands had made. God turned away and gave them up to worship the stars of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. House of Israel, you did, did you bring me offerings and sacrifices for 40 years in the wilderness? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Repha, the images that you made to worship. So I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the testimony in the wilderness just as he who spoke to Moses commanded him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our ancestors in turn received it, and with Joshua brought it when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before them till the days of David. Now he found favour in God's sight, and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. It was Solomon, rather, who built him a house, but the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with human hands. As the prophet says, my heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord? And what will be my resting place? Did not my hands make all these things? You see, the final stop on Stephen's potted history, having moved through Abraham and Joseph and Moses, is to consider at last the people, the people themselves who did receive a place who did receive a tabernacle and later a temple, a, te a people who did receive the law, the way to follow after God. They had it all. And yet, they did not have God. They had it all, and yet, in their hearts, they rejected Christ. They had it all, and they chose to serve other gods, false gods rather than the God who had delivered them 
out of Egypt. It's such a sad situation. I introduced this idea of Jesus plus nothing equaling everything as gospel algebra. And if you cast your mind back to maths lessons in school, doing algebra in school, you remember that when you move things, letters, numbers around an equal sign, positive things become negative and negative things become positive. And you see what these folks had done was to take that simple truth of Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And they wanted to subtract Jesus. They removed Jesus and God's favour and God's kindness and God's goodness from their lives. And what were they left with? Well, they had everything but not Jesus, everything minus Jesus, and ultimately they had nothing. And this is a situation, apparently, Stephen says, that these leaders now who have begun to define themselves by the temple by the law and not by God himself have found themselves in you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears you are always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did you do also which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute they even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels, and yet you have not kept it. They were accusing Stephen, but now he turns the tables on them. He accuses them of being people who have moved away from a right relationship with God who have made too much out of this physical place, who have made too much out of this written code and have made far too little of the goodness, the kindness and the promises of God. They've become defied by anything else and so they have been found empty. There's an irony in that, isn't there? That these people who were so desperate for the temple and the law to define them, who put such stock and weight in these things as a means for God to be with them. That's what the temple represents, God's presence amongst his people. As a way of God leading them, that's what the law is. God showing them how they should walk after him. And the great irony is that Jesus, the pattern, Jesus, the presence They've gotten rid of him and so now cling as they might to these bricks and these mortars and these words on a scroll. They have nothing. So what is the lesson for us this morning? Well, perhaps you are someone who has never truly turned to God. Perhaps you are someone who has never truly defined themselves found their purpose and their identity in Jesus and nothing else. The lesson for us this morning, or the lesson for you this morning, is this. Do not double down in your rejection of him. Do not double down in clinging to worthless idols. As the story goes on, John showed us last week that these folk didn't just reject Jesus once, but here they rejected him again. And when they get rid of Jesus, though they might think they have everything, they have nothing, not even life itself. They become simply wild beasts, desperate to devour others. 
is such a sad situation. Do not double down on your rejection of him. In Jesus, in God's grace, in God's promises, there are second chances. Second chances to turn away from the other things that we have installed in our lives and to turn to him and to find it all. Even in the midst of struggling, even in the midst of oppression, to find life and blessing and fullness. Don't double down. Instead, turn around and embrace that gospel algebra that Jesus plus nothing is everything to us. And then for the rest of us who perhaps have come to realise that at some point in our lives, the challenge for us is to remain in that place, isn't it? The challenge for us is to see and to truly believe and embrace this idea that if we have Jesus, we have everything. Think about Abraham's story again. He was in a place, he did have a family, but God told him to leave. He left, he lost, but he got a promise. Think about Joseph and his story. He was rejected, he was kicked out, he was sold cheaply into the hands of oppressive people. And yet he became the one who saved them all. Think of Moses who had to flee to Midian, who had to spend half of his life on the run. He came back from that place with a family and with a divine um, authority installed in him. Even in times when it feels like trusting Jesus is too costly, be sure that there is blessing and that there is life in it. I asked at the beginning, what are the things that define you, that give you identity and purpose? And I suggested that most of those things that we install in our lives end up letting us down. See, the reason that everything minus Jesus is still nothing, is because that everything can be taken away in the blink of an eye. But God's goodness endures. For thousands of years, that promise remained. And that promise was realised in the one who God said he would send, the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you have him, it cannot be taken away. Anything else that is added, well, that is gain to us. But Jesus is the constant, the only constant, the only certainty, the only solid ground that we can have. He is our very lives to us. He is our very existence. He is ours, our hope for today as much as he is he our hope for tomorrow. So if you've come to see Jesus, to embrace Jesus, then remember to define yourself but no one by nothing except Jesus because Jesus plus nothing is everything to us.